So grab your Bibles, Judges chapter three. Uh, I was hoping that we would look at the first three judges. We we're gonna look at the first one. So uh, you, you know that by now, that I always have lofty plans to cover a lot of space, and we never do. Uh, in fact, I thought we would have been in chapter six by now, and we, are, we might get the halfway chapter three uh, uh, today. Um, but what, you, what we have here is, is the prototype of what's going to happen the next 12 judges. This is the prototype. And if we can grasp this story, we, we have an idea of the outline that the rest of judges will, will follow. And uh, let me encourage you, this is the last guy we will meet for the most part, that there isn't much bad about him. Now, some of the small vignettes... You know, we just don't have a lot of details. But in terms of real narratives, it's really Othniel and Ehud we have that's mostly good stuff about. The rest of them, they do great things. They're very flawed people. And that's the good news of Judges is that God uses flawed people to do divine things. Um, and, um, but here, we, we, we got a good guy. So starting in verse 7, we have the transition of the main body of Judges here we're going to see a series of these governing leaders and military leaders. So in verse 7, we'll go down to verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sowed them into the hand of Kushan Rishathaim, that will be on your test, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, notice the repetition of his name, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kishon Rishathaim four times. So the land had rest 40 years, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, uh, this again is the prototype story of Judges. We are going to read this story over and over again, but what you have here is stripped of all the details. This is an outline story that we're going to see. So if, if you want to see example of this, the next story is Ehud. Fascinating guy. He's the left-handed dude with the sword and the, um, and the king. You notice it's from 12 to verse 30. It's going to follow the same outline, but now you're going to get details. How did Ehud uh, rescue the people? How did he deliver them? What was that like? What was the process of, 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 of uh, um, uh, captivity? What was that like? Well, you're going to get that with Ehud. And you get one verse of Shamgar. But with Othniel, it's just a bare bones story. And that is so that the reader can prepare himself for what is uh, to come. Notice there, uh, we start in verse 7. This is the pattern that we've, we've talked a lot about, disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. And we start in verse 7 with disobedience. Uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, this phrase is found throughout the book of Judges. It is... It is how you know that you've started a new section, basically. Uh, over and over again, you're going to be told, people Israel did was evil in the eyes of God. And you know already what's going to happen. God's going to judge them. But don't worry, God will deliver them eventually. And through the discipline will come deliverance. Now, what's interesting is that this is not the first time this phrase has been found. Uh, we could go back um, all the way to Genesis. Now, I, I want to show you these, and you tell me if you see a pattern. Genesis uh, 38, but Ur, Judah's firstborn son, we talked about him some 
when we did Jabez a few weeks ago. Ur, Judas' firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay, so there it is, the son of Judah uh, did what was evil. Numbers 32, and the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. He made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. So now it is attached to, more broadly, the nation of Israel in the time of the Exodus. Deuteronomy 4, when, the, when you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, remember that phrase, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger. Well, that's the book of Judges in a nutshell. It's interesting that phrase is attached, doing evil as the Lord. One more, Deuteronomy 31. For I know, this is Moses, after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And the days to come evil will befall you because you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. It's the same phrase over and over again. Now, what do all of those passages for a total, and there's a few others we can look at, for a total, what do they all have in common? The concern here. Is, is, is directed towards the people of God doing evil. You start with Ur, the son of Judah, one of the tribes, the, the patriarchs of Israel. And then it's Israel more broadly. And you come here in, in Judges 3, it is again Israel. It, it is not the Gentiles went and did what was evil in the eyes of God. The Canaanites did what was evil in the eyes of God. It's rather the people of God are doing what is evil in the eyes of God. This is particularly egregious. You remember that, that the Bible equates idolatry with spiritual adultery. What makes adultery so awful is that a person you've trusted, really with your body and soul, has betrayed you. And it is a particular wound that's caused by that. That's what this idolatry does. They're going to bring in the Baals and the Ashtaroths. And, and, and God is saying, like, my people have done evil in my sights. And this makes it particularly heinous. But what God wants them to do, and you could do a word study of this phrase, he wants to do what's right in the eyes of God. Over and over again, the people of God choose the wrong fruit from the wrong tree. And so what happens is when you go after idols, there are consequences, whether directly caused by God, like captivity and enslavement, or whether when God hands us over to our idols and our sins, um, we, we suffer the consequences of those sins. Both are acts of judgment, active and passive judgments. And what makes it so egregious is when the people of God, who should be lights in this dark place, uh, become idol worshipers. Well, you'll notice who they are they are worshiping. They forgot the Lord their God. We talked about that last week and the week before. It's not that they didn't know who Yahweh was but rather they are doing syncretism. In fact, I was reading this week. I assume it's true because it wasn't on the internet, so it has to be true. Um, but uh, it, it argued that early on, what you have is, is the Israelites started to associate Yahweh with the God of the wilderness, because for 40 years, that's who he was. And then Baal and Ashtaroth and the others with the God of the land. And so what they were trying to do is bring these two together. We do see elements of this in the Old Testament where they try this. But, but uh, what we have here is, is they forgot in the sense that, that they, they denied the exclusive worship of Yahweh. Can I give you some, some advice about understanding the culture? The world does not have a problem with Christianity. That is not, it doesn't have a problem with Christianity. Christianity is, is, is as good as anything else that's out there. 
My dad and I were going to the Capitol today. We saw the coexist sticker, which, by the way, have you noticed the coexist sticker only has two genders on it? Look at the O. Yeah, so the coexist sticker, I can't coexist with it now. Um, oh, it doesn't have ISIS flag on there. What an oversight. But anyways, um, it has the cross on it. The T coexists is the cross. And you've got the Jewish thing. You've got the Muslim, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Well, no one has a problem with Christianity. The problem with Christianity is the exclusive claim of Christianity. This was the problem with Christianity in the Roman world. The Romans wouldn't mind saying, yeah, we'll add Jesus to the whole list. Because we're all polytheists. Let's just... Throw it all in here. And Christians came, no, 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 you don't understand. Those other guys don't exist and we won't worship them. There's one guy we worship and you killed him. But there's good news for you. Despite that, he offers you grace, love, and forgiveness. The Romans didn't like that too much. Let me tell you, Americans don't like that very much. You claim the exclusivity of the gospel and suddenly you became an enemy. And this is the problem. They forgot the exclusive covenant they had with the Lord. And so they wanted to merge this. Two gods they have. The first is Baal, or what we usually call Baal. In Hebrew, you pronounce every vowel. So I know it sounds weird, but I don't know. I didn't make it up. Um, the name Baal, a name you'll come across a lot in Judges and elsewhere, it means owner, master, lord, or even husband. I'll let you make the jokes. Um, but usually you understand this to be lord, uh, I think a lot of times when you see someone's name with Baal in it, that's sort of the idea of Lord Master or someone like that. Um, there, are, uh, uh, there are a few people and not many people who have person, the personal name Baal in their name. Uh, I give you the references if you want them. But uh, at times, uh, places were named after the deity. So there is Baal Peor, Numbers 25, Baal Gad, Judges 11, and Baal Hermon, who we saw last week. Remember Mount Hermon. Baal Hermon um, is in Judges chapter 3, verse 3. The main reference to Baal is as a deity. He is a fertility god, which is also a god of agriculture. So you would find him associated with agriculture, beast, and mankind. Now you can see the connection between agriculture and fertility. So just as you want the land to be fruitful and multiply, that's connected with the home being fruitful and multiply. And I just want to pause there. Does any of that sound familiar in your reading of the Bible? Read Genesis 1 to 3. The word for fruit is associated with uh, uh, man should leave his father and mother, two should become one flesh, go be fruitful, multiply. We, well, that's fertility. But then the same word is used in, in Genesis 1 to describe creation, each according to their kind, each according to their kind. And then it is, is that the land was fruitful. So much so, Adam and Eve are encouraged to eat fruit from all the trees but one. So you see this. But what is the Bible claiming? Is, is that God is Lord over all of that. The God that gives you rain is the God that gives you children. It's the God that gives you uh, crops. He's also the God we discover who can close up the, the, the clouds. That's the story of the Exodus. You remember in Exodus, they worshiped the sun god. What did God do? He turned the sun out. <laughs> right? And his point is that you don't have many gods fighting for attention. You have one God who's Lord over all of it. So Baal comes and, and he is a prominent figure in Canaanite religion. And, and he really controls a lot that he did. And they believe that he controlled the rain. He controlled fertility. So if you were struggling having children, guess who you had to go to? 
If your crops weren't coming in, guess, you, guess who you had to go to? And this is the prominent religion when the Israelites come in. Here you have people wandering in the wilderness. Now all of a sudden they have to become farmers. And there's already this pattern that, well, the reason your crops aren't coming in is because Baal's mad at you. And so what you need are some wild practices. And associated with these practices, let me give you two things often associated with the worship of Baal. One is ritual prostitution. We saw a hint of this in Judges 2, uh, but let me give you another example in Amos chapter 2. Uh, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profane. He's describing Baal worship. This is temple prostitution. Now, pause there. And to us, we think that is so weird. But if we called it OnlyFans, would it make sense? OnlyFans? You're probably not going to know what that is. This is good. But if we call this online pornography, would it make sense? We're not doing anything differently here. Right? We, we do the same exact thing. But if you associate the worship of Baal with fertility and agriculture, how do you get Baal to bless your crops? You go into the temple. There are the prostitutes. You do, you do what you have to do. And then that is the means by which he blesses you. Now, that's odd to us as Christians, but it's increasingly becoming a major problem. This is what we're doing to women, particularly. Um, so ritual prostitution is, is a problem. You come into the New Testament, this is a problem. because This is Roman religion. To be Corinthianized was a derogatory term to, to mean things that I can't say. Because the city was so sexualized, prostitutes were everywhere, and they were all, most were associated with the temple. So Paul's always having to say, don't go near there. Stay far away from there. We don't, we don't gauge in that. And read Corinthians, and it'll make sense now. Because it was a, a trade city. It was Vegas. Because you would you'd get on your boat, you'd have your supplies, you come in the Corinth. Well, while you're unloading, you're there for a day or two. Because you got to unload and you got to load. Well, your wife's not around. Society's encouraging you to do it. After all, it's worship. The ritual prostitution is a common practice. It ends because of Christianity. Um, the other one is child sacrifice. I'll give you Jeremiah chapter 19. And uh, having built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Now, uh, this eventually, particularly with Moloch, becomes an issue. Uh, Jesus would reference the place where they would do this. It becomes a garbage dump in the New Testament. As a reminder, it became a picture of hell. Uh, now, why would Baal want that? Well, what is, what is he in charge of? Agriculture, the fruit of the land, and the fruit of the womb. So if you really are desperate, give him your child, and he'll give you more in return. Now, we do that today, don't we? Yeah, Don? Do you think that they consider that Abraham failed in the sacrifice of his son? That's an interesting story. Because it fits this context. He's in Canaan when he does that. And with Abraham, you have the early forms of this sort of polytheism. But Baal's been around forever, and there's things that come before him very similar. So that story would make sense in a pagan culture, because we expect Yahweh or Elohim, I want your son. And Abraham goes, and he's thinking, this don't sound right, but I'm going to do it. What's interesting about the story that sets Israel apart from the nations is not just that God said, I don't want your son. We're, you're, we're not like those pagans. 
But in the end, God gives us his son. That sets it apart. God doesn't want our babies, but he offers us his son. And, and uh, this, this is one of the major problems, that we believe in life. You don't, you don't take innocent life. Yeah, we call that heresy. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, theological liberalism of the 1920th century, they argue that. So you take someone like Walter Rauschenbusch, that'll be on the test. The, uh, you can come across him, the social gospel 20th century. Uh, uh, Glenn Washington before him, then Walter Rauschenbusch, and then about every liberal now. Um, they thought Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. And what the kingdom of God meant was social justice, if I can borrow that term, not a term I like. And so Rauschenbusch is reading the gospels. He's like, man, Jesus is bringing it. It's a shame he had to die. And then he thought, well, that was the mistake. Had Jesus, he'll say this, had Jesus lived, he would have brought the kingdom of God. And then you read that, you're thinking, man, I wish I worshiped a God who was like sort of in control of everything. You know, it's a shame we don't worship that God. Of course, then again, he doesn't believe in that sort of God. You know, because that's too uh, inconvenient. So, uh, Baal, here's an image. Now, there's other images. This was the, the kind of, from what I've studied, most of what he would look like. Portrayed with a helmet adorned with horns of a bull, which are symbols of strength and fertility. So you can see it there. In uh, one hand, he grasps a club or a mace. Probably represents thunder, because, you know, the, for, uh, the agriculture. And the other hand, he, he, he grasps leaves, which probably... Uh, represents the vegetation. So, so you're seeing that he's got thunder in one and then you've got the vegetation in the other. It's going to bring them together. Um, so that is Baal. Uh, he was without a doubt the most significant theological challenge to Israel in the promised land. Uh, later will come Moloch, which is very similar, but for now, Baal. Now there's another God mentioned here that's Asheroth. Uh, does anyone have a different translation? Astarte or Astar? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, the Asherim, I think, something like that. Does anyone have Asheroth? Okay, so it's plural. Okay, okay. So, so we just added the S. It would be an I-M in Hebrew. That's the plural. Um, so, for example, the Kushan, Risha, Athim, the I-M is plural. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, okay, so, so here's what I mostly want you to see. Uh, there, there's, there's the God, but then there could be a plurality of the same God. It doesn't make sense to me either to stick with me here. That's why you'll have that plural associated with her. Uh, this is a goddess. The word means groves, like a, a grow of trees. Now, you want reading from King James, you know, the real Bible? You want got your King James out? Don, okay. Will you read uh, verse 7, uh, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. Will you just read that part? And the groves. So notice in the King James uh, that it doesn't say Asheroth. It says the groves. The word means a grove of trees. It is think of Asheroth as a tree or a wooden pole. You may come across the phrase the Asheroth pole because it's a wooden pole. It's a tree. So the way she's mostly worshipped is a sacred tree. Now, what does that sound like? Okay, Eskimos. That's not what I had in mind. When in doubt, he's your man. This is to throw you left field. Um, think of, you open up your Bible. There's a sacred tree. And there's the tree you avoid. Now, again, read the Bible as a polemic, as an apologetic against those nations. Is it, isn't that God is there? 
right? It's that God is the Lord over all of the trees, over all of creation, right? Read the creation account again. You're going to see these little details the more you learn about ancient religion, uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, religion. Uh, so uh, let me prove my point that this is a tree. It's weird to me. I get it. It's a tree. First, Israel is told that it was made of, of wood. Genesis, uh, or Judges rather, 6. There it is. Um, the wood of the Asherah, you shall cut down. You don't cut down metal or iron or something like that. Um, it is manufactured because it comes from a tree. Um, uh, they have made their Asherim. There's your plural, the I-M, uh, the Asheroth, the Asherim, same, same thing. You plant the Asherim or the Asheroth. Deuteronomy 16, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah. It's all same words, singular instead of the plural. Um, you don't, uh, uh, you can erect the Asheroth. Here's two examples. Uh, high places and pillars and Asherim. Uh, here again, pillars and Asherim. So you can erect them. You can therefore burn the Asherim because I don't know if you know this, wood burns. Um, I learned that even in Owen County, mostly because we were burning things. Deuteronomy 12, um, you shall burn it with fire. Same thing in two kings, burn the Asherah. So you're going to get all the Asherim, the Asherah together. And you're going to have a, a, an old school uh, God burning, I guess. I was going to say book burning. That wouldn't make sense. Um, let's see. And you can cut them down. Um, I don't know how many of these examples I actually left up here. There you see cut down their Asherim, Deuteronomy. Oh, no, I cut out the rest. You can see Deuteronomy 7, verse 5, Judges 6, uh, three examples there. 2 Kings 18 is another example. 2 Kings 23 is another example. 2 Chronicles 14, 2 Chronicles 31. All of them talk about cutting down the Asherim. So what you have then is a sacred tree. And I think what is an example we would have today? And the, the first thing that came to mind, laugh at me if you want to, uh, if you're a college football fan, here's, here's where you're at. You remember a few years ago, Auburn and Alabama do not like each other. Auburn has a sacred tree that they associated with their school. And you remember the redneck from Alabama that poisoned the tree? And they had to fly all the experts in to try to save it. And last I heard, they couldn't save it. And the guy went on ESPN 30 for 30, confessed to all of it. Right? And when asked, he goes, well, a long time ago, Auburn guys running down a field, and one of our coaches stuck his foot out and tripped him. And when asked, why'd you do that? He goes, just the Bama in me. So why did I poison the tree? Just the Bama in me. He looks exactly the way you think he looks. Okay? He does. You, you, you know exactly what he looks like. Okay? You, you look this up. Now, what happened? People started panicking over this tree. Now, that's a sports sort of thing. But we don't really have this, but we do have sacred spaces. And, and that's all over the world. And so what they would do is they would associate a tree or they would have a pole from a tree or something. And they would say the Asherim, the goddess is here. And so the closer you are to this tree and everything associated with it, the closer you are to that God. And so when God comes and says, look, we, we've got to get rid of these idols, it's not genocide God is advocating. It's getting rid of all the idols in the land. Get rid of these gods. And so if you have a tree, the quickest way to do that is to burn it down or to cut it down. Now, she is an important uh, deity. I'm, I, I, you can Google her if you want. Uh, I mean, it's block of wood and whatnot. Very suggestive because this is a fertility goddess. Now, what's interesting is that she would be Baal's mother. And, and some, it gets confusing. They just make up stories. So she is the wife of El, the main god of the Canaanites, until Baal came and, I don't know, they 
one on Jerry Springer and he won or something like that. I don't know. But, um, um, but she is often sort of a consort of Baal. Supposedly, she mothered about 70 gods of the Canaanites. I don't understand any of that. But you can see why she would be so prominent. If you live in an agricultural society, what's the most important thing? It's the fruit of the land. Now, remember what God had promised the Israelites in the wilderness. I'm taking you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And while they're there, they panic and think, well, God isn't enough to make this flowing with milk and honey. I got to turn to these other gods. That's when you take faith into your own hands and becomes dangerous. And they've done that with the Asherah and, and the Baal. Um, and this fits squarely within what we know about the, the ancient world. Well, so that's the disobedience. Let's look quickly at the discipline, verse 8. Due to their wickedness and idolatry, God judges them by using an evil Canaanite, actually Syrian king, from the north named Kishon Rishathaim. Now, scholars look at this and think there's something more going on here than we're being told. I meant to put a map up here. Think of Canaan or Palestine now, Israel now. And just north of that is the top of the Mesopotamia, where the Tigers and Euphrates are sort of like, like this. He's coming from all the way up there, south of Jerusalem, and he's attacking them. He's coming way down. And a lot of scholars are thinking, how in the world does the guy up there end up down here? He's got to go through a lot of land. And one uh, implication of this is this guy's more powerful than what we may otherwise know. I don't think we know really anything of him outside of the Bible. Uh, this is an Aramean uh, guy. His name, the Kushan, so Kush, Kushan uh, Rishathaim, means Kushan of double evil or twice evil Kushite. Now, this is probably a nickname. Right? We, we, we do nicknames. Um, and probably what you have here is that this guy was so bad. He's not Alexander the Great. Right? He's, he's rather, that guy is twice as evil as evil itself. And, and so you see here that he, he, he comes and he enslaves them. You see it there in verse 8. Uh, the Lord kindled. Uh, he sold, God sold them into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia. Uh, and there he, they served him. So probably what you have is he's staying up there in the Arameans, but now he has slaves down here in Judah. And, uh, and he, this is a, a terrible king. Now, pause there. What does the story now sound like? Are you aware of a powerful king who enslaves the Israelites? Yeah, go like three books to the left. I mean, it's, or four books, maybe five. I don't know. I can't count. But you just go to the left. It's, it's, it's Pharaoh. It's another Pharaoh. And... But in that story, Israel fell into slavery. They did nothing wrong. They were fruitful in a fruitful land, and they were thrown into slavery. Here, you have an unfaithful people. Now, due to their unfaithfulness, they are thrown into slavery. Now, I, want, and I also want you to notice this. God is the cause of their agony. It says, he, God, sowed them to the king of Mesopotamia. Now, Remember that next time you have a bad day. God would never allow this. God may allow you to go through some bad stuff. Can I prove that to you really quickly? There's a thing in the Bible. It's called the cross. And there, the Son of God, the righteous one from eternity past, had to suffer under the hands of wicked men. You mean to tell me God didn't love his son? 
He loved him from eternity past. He's one with the Father. If God can be glorified through a cross, he can be glorified even through our suffering, which pales in comparison to the cross. But he sells them into slavery once again. And, um, oh, by the way, Cush here, his father, if you go all the way back to Genesis, Cush's father is Nimrod. There you go, Don. Uh, who is probably the main dude of early Babylon. So this has a lot of early history to it. It's problematic for Israelites. So that leads to deliverance, verses 9 through 11. Um, so after eight years of oppression and slavery, uh, the Judahites, here the Israelites, the Judahites more specifically, cry out to the Lord for deliverance. This mirrors the Exodus story. Uh, verse nine, in fact, verse 9 uses the word cried. The, uh, I believe this is the first time the word is used, um, and it's only used twice between Genesis 1 and this passage. The first time it's used is in Exodus 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, Pharaoh. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And there's that word, same Hebrew word you get here in Judges 3, verse 9, cried out. It's, it's the same story. We are meant to see this as another type of Moses story. And therefore, Othniel is a type of Moses. Look also there in verse 9. Um, it says, when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer. You see the repetition? It's good that it comes out in the English. It's bad English, but it, it's good that they brought it out. In Hebrew, you've heard me say before, repetition means emphasis. So they cried out to Yahweh, and it was Yahweh who brought a deliverer. The same God that, that God that sent them into slavery is the same God who would deliver them from it. Now that, that's faith. They finally come to realize it's not Baal and Ashtaroth that's given us crops. It's Yahweh. You can see the, the change in their own hearts. They've come to realize that the God we worship is mightier than the God of the Arameans and the Canaanites. Right? That's faith. And so they cry out to him and they ask for a deliverer. This word up to this point in the Bible is primarily associated with Moses but even more, it's associated with Yahweh. If, if, you, if you do a word study of this word, it's always God delivered them, God delivered them, God delivered them. Moses delivered them, yes, but it's mostly God. But the story is that of the Exodus. We are meant to see this. Othniel is a, uh, is, is a small town, small time, small, yeah, small time Moses. He is that sort of figure. Uh, and so we meet him there in verse 9. Uh, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We met him in chapter one. You remember when uh, Judah was taking over all these cities until eventually they couldn't take any more cities? Well, one of those cities was a city called Debir. You remember Caleb, he, he, he put out the message, any man that can take Debir, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And Othniel's looking out, right? like, I'll go first, right? <laughs> you know, I'll slay the dragon. Uh, you know, I'll take the princess. So he goes, takes the city, and you, and you remember, it was her who went up to her father and said, all right, now that we're married, can I ask for one more thing? Give me the land with all the springs. And what she creates in the promised land is another Eden. That's chapter one. That's, we meet Othniel. He's, he's this military figure. And years have gone by. They've had a great marriage. Let's, let's pretend it's a great marriage. I'm sure it was. And all of a sudden, after eight years, he's, he's having to deal with these Arameans. And eventually people are like, what are we going to do about this? We're crying out to God. And Othniel does what he did before. He goes, well, no one else is going to do it. I'll take them on. Here's this little tribe. 
And he's willing to lead this little tribe to take on this mighty king. Seems impossible task. But God raised him up to do this. Now, his name is complicated. It probably means Lion of God. You see the El, Othni El, that's Elohim. It could mean God is my strength or God has helped me. Um, but, uh, oh, by the way, I, I meant to put that picture up there as well. We, there is a site in the Middle East. I don't know if Danny, if you all went to this. You may not. Have. That's a prominent spot. He's supposedly buried over in Israel. You can go to the traditional burial site of Othniel. Now, I don't think they've dug up the body, done DNA tests. But this is he's apparently prominent enough that they've tried to keep the tradition of his burial. I don't know how far back it goes, but Google it. It's the cave of Othniel or something like that. You can go in there and say, way to go, buddy. You know, uh, I read about you in, on Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, but I do want to highlight this, verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was with him, and he judged Israel. This is the language of anointing. Um, this language is used of Othniel, obviously. Gideon in chapter 6. Jephthah in chapter 11. Uh, Samson in chapter 13. Actually, that phrase is used four times with Samson. You, you remember that when he, 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 he tears apart the pillars there at the end? Because it, the spirit left him, cut his hair. Then, then he cried out, much like the Israelites here, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon him again. Pushes over. I can't wait till we get Samson. Saul in 1 Samuel 10 is the uh, Spirit of the Lord comes on. David, when he's anointed there in Bethlehem. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 11, same language. Micah, Micah 3. And finally, Jesus. The prophet Isaiah uses this. In fact, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in Nazareth. You remember he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor. And they responded by trying to throw him off a cliff. Jesus claims for himself, the Spirit has fallen upon me. I am the anointed prophet's. But even more than that, he's the anointed Messiah because that's the, that's the prophecy. The Messiah will come. He will bring good news to the poor. It's the same phrase you find uh, with Othniel. And notice in, in verse 10, uh, the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He judged Israel. He went out to war. The Lord gave the king into his hands and his hand prevailed over him. So he gave him his hand, but his hand prevailed. That repetition is military language. Um, what's interesting, isn't it, that this is kind of uh, anticlimactic. Don't you want to know how he did it? I do. That's why I read Judges, because the stories are just so masculine-oriented. Let's be honest. You know, look, ladies, you got Psalms. It's a musical. Great. But this is military fighting in action, right? By the way, like uh, I read today, 80% of musicals is a female audience. So, so you, you can have it. I promise you, I don't want it, Okay. Um, but, but so you get, you get the longest book of the Bible for you, ladies. Give us one book of blood and war, okay? So you read Othniel, and he goes, oh, yeah, he just going to, he delivered him. Like, well, give me details. I want the speech he gave before he mounted his horse and went into battle. Don't you? Don't you want that, like Aragorn at the, at the black gate in Return of the King? Oh, give me that. The day may come when the men of, of, of Middle Earth fail, but it's not this day, right? Don't you want that? But the point of the story is not to give us those details. It's to give us this outline. Is, is disobedience, discipline, and deliverance. And notice this, verse 11, they get 40 years of rest in the land. You think that's important? Where did we come across 40? 
You remember, his 40 years of wandering was an act of judgments. They were longing for rest. Now they have it. 40 years of rest. Their deliverer rules over them and you get rest. This is the whole point of the promised land. God will give you the fruit of the land and the fruit of the womb. Not Baal, not Ashtaroth, Yahweh. The God who delivered you will keep you. If only I could think of an application, right? I mean, that's the gospel. That's sanctification. That's the Christian life. But notice how it ends. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. It's a terrible ending. Because you wanted to end with, they all lived happily ever after. But we've already read from the introduction, the first two and a half chapters, that when a generation passes, there's a failure to pass on that faith. There's a generation that believes the gospel. There's a generation that assumes the gospel. There's a generation that forgets the gospel. And it doesn't take long. After Othniel dies, you end up with that generation. They go right back to those lovers. And what's the next story? It's another judge in a different part of Israel. And it's the same story. So what do we do with this? Um, uh, let me give you just two points and we're done because it sounds like the kids are done. Um, the first is this story follows the basic narrative of Scripture. Uh, we're actually going to see something similar Sunday evening, Lord willing, that follows this. The gospel story is one of disobedience, discipline, discipline, and deliverance. So you get the act of sin in Genesis 3, God's discipline of a cursed earth, and he comes with deliverance. And so what you're getting in Judges and the Exodus and with David and all the others is how God constantly comes down to deliver his people from their sins and the mess they've made. And Othniel is just a small taste of that broader narrative. I read to you uh, months ago of a rapper, a pagan rapper. He was in prison, and he, he decided to read the Bible. And they asked him, what do you think about reading the Bible? He goes, you know what was interesting? God kept saving those people. I thought, he understands the Bible better than most Christians. That's the magnitude of grace. He keeps saving people who don't deserve it. And Othniel is a small flavor of that. Disobedience, discipline, deliverance. But you don't get deliverance unless you cry out to the great deliverer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's the second thing I want you to grasp. That is the importance of the Holy Spirit's. The people of God must rely on the Spirit of God for great things to be accomplished. This is hard for us to do. This is very hard for us to do because for Baptists for a long time have trusted more in programs than we have the Spirit of God. We are discovering a post-Christian society programs don't have the power we once thought they did. No. So it's easy for us to say, if we just did VBS, all the kids would show up. You want to know what happened with VBS for decades? Kids showed up. They never returned. You have 150 kids here. I've done the history. I've done two volumes. You can read it now on Amazon for 10 bucks or less. Actually, like six bucks. We've done all the VBS, and I'm glad we did that. People have been saved from that. I met my wife at Vacation Bible School. I love Vacation Bible School because I met my wife, if nothing else. Let's be honest. We've had thousands of kids come to this church in 60 years of VBS. How many of them? ever returned. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. 
programs aren't the power of God. God can use them, of course. But what we should be seeking is the Spirit of God. Read the book of Acts. They didn't have Sunday school. They didn't have vacation Bible school. They didn't do revivals. They showed up and said, Jesus is the only way. Kill me or or believe me. Either way, something's about to happen. And they prayed and the Spirit moved and souls got saved. The problem with that is it makes us feel powerless. That's kind of the point. Yeah, Don. We were talking about this not carrying over to the next generation. Um, the kids I graduated from high school with, they didn't take their kids to church and didn't tell them about the gospel and tell them in that stuff. Yeah. Um, and they would talk about the kid would be out of state or somewhere, and I said, why are they out of state? They said, well, they're trying to find themselves. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, That's a very postmodern jargon. Yeah, we've, we've made faith so personal mm-hmm. that, that we've, we've made evangelism almost a dirty word. Yeah. Well, the thing that I was going to do, reading this thing lately, all of that stuff seemed to happen. 